Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bibles with us tonight, if you will, to uh, Proverbs chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're teaching a series that we've entitled Biblical Prosperity. Uh, we are approaching it from a little different angle. It's not my intent to, to go through the Bible and show every, every scripture that uh, is in there on the subject of prosperity. Um, there are certain things that I take for granted in this series, and that is that you have a working knowledge of, of what the Bible does say about Jesus having paid the price not only for our uh, redemption, uh, specifically taking the price of sin upon him, but also the price of sickness and also the price of our well-being um, in every area, financial as well as other areas. And, uh, and as such, we're approaching it from a standpoint, uh, at least in part, we're approaching it from a standpoint of uh, uh, what Judaism teaches about prosperity. We've uh, given some t- statistics uh, but even without the statistics, I don't think anybody would disagree that the Jews seem to have a handle on financial uh, prosperity and well-being that the church just doesn't have a clue about, or at least hadn't put into practice. And there's got to be a reason for that. There's got to be something that they're doing that we don't uh, understand or something that we're not doing or whatever the case is. There's got to be a missing link uh, in in there somewhere. And... Uh, and I believe God wants us to see it and know it for the last days so that the church can do the work that uh, we need to do before his return. Amen. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. It says, the blessing of the Lord maketh rich. Rich. Now, you look up that word rich, that, uh, and you'll find out that it means rich. It's talking about financial well-being. It's talking about resources. It's talking about material possessions. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Now, that tells us that there are other ways that you can get rich that are not sorrow-free. The word sorrow is also the word grief. In other words, some, uh, there are some ways that you can obtain resources and uh, gain wealth or riches here in this earth that's not the blessing of God and, and, uh, and doesn't have the same joy or, or um, uh, um, peace attached to it that the blessing of the Lord does. Then also look, at, look with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We've looked at these scriptures before, but it's good to uh, refresh our memory on these things. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. After, G, after uh, Moses is telling the children of Israel that the flocks and the herds are going to multiply in the promised land and their silver and gold and everything they have will multiply, he warns them and says, don't forget God. Don't start thinking that it was you that got this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, verse 18, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. That he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Now that last phrase, as it is this day, means the promise is just as true to you as it was to Abraham. 400 and something years before when God blessed him and made him rich. Now there's also a verse of scripture. You don't have to turn there, but uh, you're going to be familiar with it even if you don't know the, the reference. There's a verse of scripture in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6 that starts off and says, My people perish for a lack of knowledge. Now, certainly, without dispute, we know that that applies to people that don't have knowledge of of God and his word and what Jesus has done for us. For example, anybody that dies and goes to hell perishes because of a lack of knowledge. Whether it's that they never heard or they never listened or they never discerned, whatever the case is, nobody with their eyes open is going to pick hell over heaven. So there's got to be some lack of knowledge. There's got to be some knowledge gap there, whether it's self-inflicted or not, that 
robs anybody and everybody of the, of the blessings that Jesus has purchased for us. People have died, Christians have died of sickness and disease because they didn't have knowledge. Even though it was available to, all, to them all the time in the Word, they didn't have knowledge of the healing power of Jesus and the fact that he's already purchased our well-being, our, our healing, physical well-being, through the blood shed on the cross. Same thing's true where prosperity is concerned because Isaiah 53 says that at the same time that Jesus paid the price for our sins, he paid the price for our sickness, and he also paid the price for our material well-being, specifically prosperity. Now, there's a problem with that, though, because it seems to me that the church operates according to the spirit of the world when it comes to knowledge. Here's what I mean. You know that we hear through studies and, and reports and different things like that that there's an obesity epidemic in America. So what do they do? Well, government spends billions of dollars each year to put nutritional guides and information on packages. You know as well as I do that there's a group of people in this country years ago that decided that too many tobacco products were being used, too many people were smoking, too many people were using tobacco products. And so they spent billions of dollars putting the Surgeon General's warning on cigarette packs and snuff boxes and whatever else there is out there, tobacco goods. You know as well as I do that anytime somebody is trying to gain favor with certain political groups in this country, that they cite low-income areas, inner cities usually, as uh, high crime areas, high crime rates, and they say that the problem is education. So billions and billions of dollars are spent on education to try to change the, the crime rates or crime statistics in the inner cities. However, we still have an obesity problem. We still have people smoking. And we still have high crime rates in the inner cities. Because the idea that we have in this country, in this world that we live in, this present day, is that knowledge fixes everything. But folks, people don't eat too much because they don't know. People don't smoke because they don't know. People don't commit crimes because they don't know. They don't have knowledge. It's not a knowledge problem. It's a lack of strength of character issue. In other words, people aren't doing what they know they should do. Well, the same thing's true in a biblical sense, a, a scriptural sense. James 1.21 says, Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. What's he talking about? He's talking about receive the knowledge of the word. But then verse 22 goes on and says, but be doers of the word and not just hearers only. In other words, it's not knowledge alone that's going to solve the problem. I think, my opinion, you judge it for yourself. I think that a lot of the prosperity message and a lot of the prosperity teaching in the body of Christ today is about gaining knowledge and knowledge alone. Now, here's the difference in, uh, uh, in the Jew Jewish way of looking at things. We've talked about for the last several weeks kind of hit around it, talked a little bit more about it, uh, well, two weeks ago, I guess it was. I wasn't here last week. But uh, two weeks ago, we, we really hit on the idea that money is spiritual. This is something that is ingrained throughout ancient Judaism. Money is a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual commodity. Money in the, in the ancient Judaism uh, texts and, and rabbis' teachings and so forth Money, is, they recognize and identify their money as them. Money is you. Now, you might say, well, there's more to me than just money. There's more to my life than just money. And if we have time and get to it, I'll show you where Jesus even said that your life consists more. He said, beware of covetous, covetousness. 
because your life consists of more than just the abundance of things that you possess. And it's certainly true that there's more to our lives, there should be more to our lives than just our money. But the reality is very simply this. The totality of your money is a revelation of your entire self. So there may be more to you than just money, but there's nothing more to your money than you. Your money is a physical representation, a physical representation of the work of your hands, the operation of your life, and your interaction with other people. Now, the Jews get this. They understand this. They understand that they were made in the image of God. They believe when Genesis tells them that God said, let us make man in our own image. They understand that man was made in the image of God. And for them, that comes down to two things. Here's what being made in the image of God means to the Jew. Now, when I say that and use that phrase, and I, I'm, I'm prone to use that and say that often, certainly not every Jew believes this. What I'm talking about is this is the teaching of ancient Judaism. Here's the teaching of ancient Judaism and the meaning as taught by the ancient rabbis of what it means to be made in the image of God. Two things. First, God endowed man with the unique ability among all of his creation to create even as he creates. And secondly, God made man individually, each individual person, human being, as unique as he is. Now, let's take the second one first and explain it a little bit. Everybody knows that, that fingerprints are different. Your fingerprints are different from mine. Uh, everybody's got a, a separate uh, fingerprint for your index finger than every one of your ten fingers. Everybody knows that. For the Jew, that has special meaning because it shows two things. It shows, number one, the uniqueness, how that God made each person special and unique, but the fact that he put fingertips or, or fingerprints, excuse me, at the end of our hands, which to the Jew represents work, means that God has given to every human being, every living being, living human, special and unique qualities relative to the work of their lives. Now that brings us back to point number one. God made man in his image and gave him creative power, creative ability. Well, in what area does the Jew or does, the, does Judaism teach that man has the ability to create? Wealth. See, Christians are trying to make money. Jews are trying to create wealth. And they understand that wealth creation is a spiritual endeavor. It's got the fingerprint of God upon them, upon man. That is the, the, the singular proof that man is made in God's image is that he has the ability to create wealth. No animal can do that. Monkeys don't create wealth. No other created being does so except for the humans. Man is the only thing that has the ability to create wealth. That to the Jews in ancient Judaism, from the ancient times in Judaism, is proof that man's work has the touch of God upon it. Therefore, it has to be a spiritual thing. It separates man from every other created being. Now, as I said, your money is really you. Your money represents your life. It represents what you do with your life. It represents the work of your life. Remember the Bible says God promised to bless the work of our hands. What does that mean? To the Jew it means everything. The work of your hands means your life. The representation of your life through your work. They believe that there is no time. It's been taught throughout the ages in Judaism. They believe that there is no time 
in, our, in man's existence that he is at his best where his creative energy is concerned than when he's working. So for the Jew, he understands that the, that the, the business of business, if you'll allow me to use that term, he understands that the business of business is spiritual. For the Jew, the power to get wealth is creative or spiritual energy. Church doesn't seem to look at it like that. The church seems to look at the power to get wealth as being the big deal. It's the, it's the deal that we close, that once we close that, then everything's going to work out right for us for the rest of our days. The church seems to look at it, or Christians in, uh, that, that I've had experience with over the years, seem to be looking for the, the big score. If only God would help us make this deal. If only God would help us do this or do that. Or this one thing that I've been looking for for so long. If only, then we'd be set for life. The Jew's not looking to be set for life. He's looking to create wealth every day of his life. He's looking for God to bless the work of his hands every day. No matter what he does, no matter what he's called to. Now there's another element of this where the Jew is concerned. And that comes down to uh, trust. The Jew recognizes, and again, uh, forgive me for using that term. What I mean by that is Judaism, ancient Judaism, has taught from the beginning. The, the reality, and it is a truth, the reality of faith as a part of business. For example, look at the, look at the um, uh, economic system as we know of it. Nobody knows for sure who came up with the first idea, or the, the original idea of using money represent goods and services now Judaism attributes it to uh, Isaac there's no historical evidence uh, outside of Jewish tradition that uh, that proves that so I don't know if that's right or not but think about that certainly before whoever came up with the original idea of a monetary means of exchange there ha- the only thing that that we can assume would be in place would be a barter system so the shepherd the person that's identified his skill at raising sheep brings the finest wool fleece in town to the baker. And he says, my family needs bread. I'll trade you my wool fleece for your bread. Well, it's summertime. The baker doesn't want a wool fleece in the summertime. So what happens? Somebody comes up with the idea and says, well, okay, instead of me giving you my wool fleece or whatever it is during the summertime when you don't want it, I'll give you metal discs. Can you imagine the laughter that that would be greeted with? Now, unless everybody, now I can't imagine it happening this way, but I don't know. who. Maybe it did. But unless the whole town comes together and decides, yeah, we'll all start exchanging these little round coin, things called coins or metal discs in exchange for goods and services, how in the world can a monetary system get started? No matter how it worked, and again, there's no historical evidence, historical uh, indicator of how or when it worked. It started working or started operating in this way, the way that we know it. No matter how or when it worked, it had to be based on one thing, and that is mutual trust. If you're the baker, and whether it's the shepherd or the, the uh, 
farmer or whoever it is that brings you these metal discs or whatever means of exchange they started with. Maybe it was rocks instead of discs. I don't know. But it had to be something that was agreed on between at least two people to start with that there would be a means of exchange. If you can't trust the guy that's giving you the metal discs, what are the metal discs worth? Nothing. Not a thing in the world. The Jews recognize this, folks. Now, the Jews have gotten a bad rap over the years. Now, don't get me wrong. There are evil Jews just like there are evil Christians. There are dishonest Jews just like there are dishonest Gentiles. There are dishonest lawyers just like there are dishonest preachers, just like there are dishonest mechanics, just like there are dishonest people in every area of business. I don't think it's fair to anybody to use one extreme issue or, or situation, example, to try to tar and feather everybody. Lawyers may be the exception, but who knows? No, but you see my point. Just like lawyers have a bad, bad reputation because of some of the actions of certain ones. I'm sure that there are a lot of honest lawyers out there. I'm sure there are a lot of uh, devoted Christian lawyers just like there are devoted Christian mechanics in every other field or whatever it might be. But the Jews are known, talked about, rumored to be, slandered throughout the world as dishonest people. But there is nobody that recognizes the necessity for honesty and truthfulness in business more than the Jews. Nobody. As a matter of fact, you go back in history and, and our word dollar comes from a, a, a Jewish individual named Thaler who refined, the, the, uh, uh, was in the refining business. He had some silver mine on his property and he created a, a refining process that purified silver more than anybody else. And his, uh, his sailors became the word dollar, the word that we know of as dollar through the years and passed down from one culture to the next culture because they were known as something of extreme and great value. In other words, the reputation of his product, which was silver, silver coins, the reputation that he gained from his product was something that became the standard for everybody else. The banking business was started on the reputation of one man, one man that was trusted to handle money in an ethical way, and he always maintained that trust. The whole banking business began that way. Consequently, and, and you can see this in, uh, uh, in, in other ways too, it's not just the Jews, but you can see in, even in our, our present world, in our present economy, the necessity for reputation as far as business is concerned. In 1991, Solomon Inc., parent company for Solomon Brothers uh, was found to have operated fraudulently in their treasury bond auctions with the government. And, uh, and lawsuits started stacking up. The, the head guy was fired by the board of directors. Other ones, key people were, were planning to leave. It was like the sharks were circling. There was a certain man whose name you'll recognize. His name was Warren Buffett. Came in in the summer of 1991 and on the reputation of his, on his personal reputation, turned everything around. He got some of the people that were going to leave, planning to leave because of the situation at hand. He got them to stay. He got the Treasury Department not to, to uh, exclude the company from their bond auctions by the promise, his personal guarantee that they had operated ethically and so forth. He turned the company around. Well, stories like that, and we could tell stories all night like that, 
Stories like that show that business is basically built. The foundation of good business is reputation. In other words, trust. The Jews get this. The Jews recognize that business is their faith in action. Now, here's a discrepancy that I see with the church. The church tries to boil down faith to confession. So somebody in the church world that's trying to believe God for finances is confessing the word. The Jew doesn't worry about confessing it. He just does it. He just operates from a faith, an inherent faith that he has because he knows several facts. He knows that the blessing of God is upon the Jews. He knows that there's going to be persecution and that doesn't stop them from doing business. They don't let what other people think about them keep them from creating wealth. Clearly, these verses of Scripture we looked at in Proverbs 10.22 and Deuteronomy 8.18, clearly God wants the people that he's talking to to prosper. Now, a lot of the church world say, well, he's just talking to the Jews. Well, clearly he was talking to the Jews, but does that mean it's ours? Paul said so. Paul said in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, verse 14, so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. Well, this part of the blessing of Abraham. That's what it means. I've given thee the power to get wealth to establish the covenant which I swear unto your forefathers, Abraham, even as it is this day. So the Bible says that this blessing belongs to the church. So what does the church do with this knowledge? Does the church use this knowledge in the same way that the Jews do? Nope. The segment of this modern day church that believes this or understands this or is aware of this, that gains this knowledge, has boiled down prosperity to confession. That's not what the Jews do. The Jews don't worry about confessing it. The Jews just act on it. The Jews recognize that anything and everything they put their hand to is blessed because God said so. And so they go about their business creating wealth. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to start reading in verse uh, verse 13. Jesus is teaching to a multitude of people, Jewish multitude. And it says in verse 13, verse 13, I want to get the the whole context of this. I'm going to read down through a lot of this uh, passage. But it says, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? Now, this is not my, my subject, but since, uh, or not specifically the, the point that I'm trying to make, but since we're here and we're talking about prosperity, let me show you something. What do these verses tell us? Why are these there? Did it really happen? Yeah, it really happened. Why did the Holy Ghost see it, feel it necessary or deem it necessary to show us? Well, notice what it tells us. It tells us that this income equality thing that so many politicians are preaching is not God. God is not about income equality equality he's not about what the world calls fairness jesus never here included commanded or took somebody's resources and gave it to somebody else you'll hear politics in politicians mouths and their claims well we need to be like jesus and give to the poor jesus never gave somebody else's money to the poor he gave his own so this idea that government's supposed to support the poor and do it all, all this kind of stuff you can hide behind Jesus on that if you want to, but the Bible doesn't support it. God's not a socialist. 
And he doesn't have to be because he gave the power to get wealth to everybody that believes in him. It's not necessary to take away from somebody for you to gain more. That's the miracle of wealth creation. Wealth is an infinite sum. It's an infinite concept. Socialism says there's a fixed number of dollars and we've got to separate them between the people. That's not what God promised. That's not what wealth really is about. So then Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. Here's the verse of scripture I referred to earlier. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Now what does he mean? Does he mean it's wrong to have an abundance of things? We have to assume, the Bible doesn't say so, but since this is a Jewish crowd, we have to assume that this, the, the one that came up and wanted the inheritance to be divided between him and his brother had to be a Jew. would stand that a Gentile would be asking the question in a Jewish crowd. So Jesus is saying, take heed and beware of covetousness, guard against greed, because a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Now the church will take, at least a certain segment of the church will take verses of scripture like this and say, well, see, God doesn't want anybody to be rich. That's not what Jesus said at all. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying beware of greed. He didn't say beware that you don't have too much. I know a lot of people that are greedy that don't have anything. Greed is not a function of, a, uh, of an abundance. Some of the greediest people I've ever met are people that didn't have anything. So let's keep in mind what he's really talking about. And he spake a parable unto them. Why? For what purpose? To prove the point that he's making about covetousness and abundance. He spake a parable unto them saying the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Now let me ask you a question. When the Jewish crowd hears Jesus telling the parable about rich people, who does he think, who do they think that he's talking about? Do you think, would they assume that he's talking about the evil rich? The Gentile rich? Or is he talking about somebody that's operated according to the blessing of Abraham and it worked? Every Jew knows the blessing of Abraham. Every Jew knows that riches are a part of the blessing that God gave to Abraham. So when Jesus tells this parable about a certain rich man, they can relate. He's going to use a parable that they can relate to. So he's talking about someone that would be a Jew. So he said, a certain rich man, or the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Well, that's what it's supposed to do. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much good years laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall, be those, who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Now notice the, the point that Jesus is making in this parable. So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So where does the abundance of things become a problem? Well, just like Moses said in Deuteronomy 8, 18. When everything you have is multiplied, be sure that you don't forget God. And remember that it was, uh, but remember instead that it was he that gave you the power to get wealth. So what is Jesus implying that this guy should have done? He should have looked around and said, well, I've got two choices. I can either build bigger barns or I can use what I have to help other people. Because I sure don't need any more. 
My barns are full as they are. And notice what Jesus calls that. He calls that, the, he contrasts the difference between laying up treasure for yourself, which if we put Deuteronomy 8, 18 together with this, or Deuteronomy 8, the surrounding verses around 8, verse 18, along with this, then we'd have to say that forgetting God is where you only look out for yourself. Or his other option would be to be rich toward God. And how can you be rich toward God? You're going to give everything to God? You're going to give everything to the temple? Being rich toward God is interacting with other people, using your finances and your resources to interact with other people for their benefit. Now, where did the guy go wrong? Well, he sure didn't go wrong when his ground was bringing forth plentifully. He's doing everything right up to then. Where he went wrong was in his thinking. When he started to think, notice what it says in verse, uh, verse 17. And he thought within himself saying, what, room, what shall I do because I have no room wherewith to bestow my fruits? What does his thought and what, does his, what do his words indicate? His thoughts and his words as identified by Jesus in this parable indicate that he's only out for himself. Notice what doesn't work in the subject, within the area of prosperity. Being out for only yourself. Now folks the Jews get this. They don't get it from Jesus parable. Don't misunderstand me. They don't accept anything that we're going to read about Jesus. They get this concept. They understand. The church thinks of giving as far as, as, far as tithes and offerings and giving to the church is concerned. The Jews. It doesn't matter to the Jews where you give. They've got a thousand and one different excuses for why you're not giving to the synagogue and you're giving to somebody else. They'll even go so far as to say they're paying their tithes if they're paying their kids tuition to college. And God seems to be okay with that somehow. And the reason for it, remember, remember business is a faith proposition for the Jew. He understands that it's this creative, it's creative and spiritual energy at work. And remember the rule that Jesus gave us time after time after time. He told people again and again, according to your faith, be it unto you. Now, folks, I, I hate to, well, I hope this doesn't come across in the wrong way. But the Jews have a lot more faith where finances are concerned than the church seems to. Now, the churches will preach faith for finances a lot more than the Jews will. But the Jews act on what they believe, and it works, even to the point of giving, uh, paying their tithes or using their, their giving to their own family. They're advancing somebody's education, and to the Jew, nothing's more important than education. So if they're helping a family member with their educational expenses, helping them to advance, they are prospering not only or benefiting not only their, their family member, whoever they're paying the tuition for, but all those that their education will bless and benefit when they go out into business for themselves. They look at it as a ripple effect. If I give here, it's blessing him, and he'll bless them, and they'll bless them, and they'll bless them, and they'll bless them. The church doesn't seem to do that. The church seems to look at giving as a one-time act, in many cases, for the purpose of getting back. And so they're, they're, the, the faith that they're exercising through the, the action of the giving is totally different. And many times, I believe, 
it works for the Jews and won't work for the Christian or doesn't work for the Christians in the way that it should or in the same way that it does for the Jews because we're giving to get. Our thought is toward ourselves. How can we get more? Well, I know how to get more. Jesus said give and it will be given unto you. So I'll give more and then get more and then I'll give more and I'll get more. And all the time we're not thinking about the person we're giving to. We're thinking about what we can get. Sure got quiet in this Presbyterian church. Do you see the principle, folks? Look with me over to Mark chapter 10. No, 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 I can't leave Luke 12 yet. Jesus isn't through talking. Verse 22. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Therefore I say unto you. In other words, he's saying, This is the whole reason that I was talking to you. Beware of covetousness. Don't lay up treasure for yourself and be stingy toward God. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Now, where have we seen the thought issue before? Verse 17. The guy is thinking about himself. Even though he's got more than enough, he's thinking about himself. So what does Jesus say? Don't think about yourself. Now, can I ask you a question, folks? Now, let's just forget this is church. Let's Let's just pretend that we're talking. How can we not think about ourselves? I think about myself every day, and so do you. You might get religious on me and not admit to it right at this moment, but you do. We all do. It's the way we're made. Of course we think about ourselves. We think about ourselves when planning our day. We think about ourselves when it comes lunchtime and our stomach's growling. We think about ourselves constantly. Is Jesus saying, you're doing the wrong thing if you think about yourself? No, remember what he talked about. He's talking about thinking of yourself in context of verse 21. So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Maybe a better translation would be don't think only about yourself. And when it comes to money, don't worry about money. That's the point he's trying to make. Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for your body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. Is he saying you don't need that stuff? Is he saying you don't need the physical needs of your body to be met? Of course not. He's saying your life is worth more than that. Okay, now stop here for a minute. If your life is worth more than your, the, what you eat and what you wear or those things, possessions that represent money, then what point is he trying to make? What point is he trying to make? He's trying to make the point, just like the parable that he told about the rich guy, he's saying you don't have to worry about not having enough. You don't have to worry about not having enough. This is not my, uh, my, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Next Wednesday, my plan is to teach on why giving works from, the Jude, from a Judaic, Judaic standpoint. Why giving works. You know why giving works for the Jew? We'll come next week and I'll tell you. <laughs> what Jesus is saying is very simply a pro, uh, a a principle that the Jews have put in practice for years. You know why the Jews are willing to give? Do you know why the Jews are willing to give 10%? Because only rich people give 10% of their income. They consider it an act of faith. They're acting rich even if they're not. And that's what the ancient rabbis taught them. Act rich and give. Folks, we might throw off on other people and say that a lot of other folks don't know anything about faith. But when it comes to finances, the Jews understand faith. They may not know what it's called. They may not know it's faith of the heart and confessing with the mouth. 
but they know how to do it. That's what Jesus is trying to make the point about. And these people have been taught this. This is not new revelation. This is not new teaching. Jesus is adding to what they've already been taught by the rabbis. He's saying, take no thought for your life. Don't think only about yourself, in other words. What you shall eat, neither for your body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. In other words, your thoughts are worth more than just spending them all on yourselves. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap, which should neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much better, how much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you with taking thought, same concept, which of you with taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? Can't change anything by thinking, folks, but you can change by doing. If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, least is in, at least in, in importance why take ye thought for the rest thinking meaning worry if worrying about stuff doesn't work why do it consider the lilies how they grow they toil not they spin not yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these if then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven how much more will he clothe you O yield little faith and seek not after what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither you will be of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things. Now, folks, stop right here and back up with me a little bit. You remember the parable Jesus just spoke about the rich man who said, I've got to build bigger barns and stuff like that for myself? Notice the connection Jesus makes. He said, God says to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. What connection is Jesus making? I wanted to save this until this point in the scripture, in this uh, progression of the, of the scriptures that we're going to read. What is Jesus making the connection between your money and your life? In other words, to the Jew, your money is you. What he chose to do with his goods, with his possession, with that which represented his money, the work of his hands, the product of his field, represented him. So when he chose to use his efforts and his resources to build bigger barns so that he could have more for himself, he's using his money, which represents him, to show that it's all about him. And that's the whole point that Jesus is trying to make about this. Certainly you're going to have to be concerned about yourself. Certainly any rational person is going to think, you know, what are we going to do about this and how are we going to handle that? The Bible talks about wisdom making good plans. He's talking about your money being you. So he says in verse 31, maybe we should back up to verse 30. For all these things, what you shall eat and drink and other stuff, all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things. Please notice God knows your needs. Think about what that means. God doesn't meet needs based on needs. God doesn't move based on your needs. If that was the case, then we'd never have to ask God for anything. We'd never have to believe him for anything. If we just had a need and God met our needs, then everything would be taken care of all along. So he said, your father knows you have need of all these things. But, verse 31, rather seek ye the kingdom of God 
And all these things, all these things, all these things, the things that you need, shall be added unto you. Now, verse 32 is the real kicker. He said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure. It's the will of God, in other words, to give you the kingdom. Now, what happens when you gain the kingdom? All the stuff comes along with it. What's Jesus saying? Saying the same thing that Moses said. When what you have is multiplied, don't forget that it was God that gave you. The power to get wealth. The spiritual energy that creates wealth. God will give it to you. It's what God wants to do. But he doesn't want you to be occupied with it. So he said, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Verse 33, sell that which you have. Sell with that which you have. What is he saying? Is he commanding everybody to dispossess themselves of, of anything and everything they own? No. He's saying you don't have to be afraid to give. You don't ever have to be afraid to give. The Jews get this. They give like they're already rich. Now, they may not give like you and I give. They may give to the Cancer Society. They may give to the opera. They may give to, to family members. But they give. Why? Because it's an act of faith on their part. Sell that which you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens. There's a... Um, yeah, let me pull it up here. What verse is that? Verse 33. I missed it. There it is. It says, sell that which you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. The, the word bags means a depository. In other words, he's talking about provide for yourself a place to keep treasure. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure or a deposit in the heavens. Notice he says, you make your own depository where you keep your treasures or your deposits through your giving. He's saying, use your money, use your resources for eternal purposes. How do you do that? By giving to other people. Why? Because your money is you. Not only does your salary represent your creative energies, your spiritual energies, and the value attached to those energies as, you're, as you interact with other people. Nobody makes money on their, on their own. Adam didn't have any need for a monetary system because it was just him. So money is about interaction with other people. In the same way that it represents your interaction with other people and it represents your life when it's coming to you, it represents your life when it's going from you to help somebody else. Your money is you. It's not all of you. But all of your money is you. Sell that which you have and give alms. Provide yourself bags, depositories, which wax not old. A deposit in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approaches, neither can moth corrupt. For where your treasure is, there will be, there your heart. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's he saying? He's saying your money is connected to the inner man. The Jews get this. Jews don't know about spirit, soul, and body. Matter of fact, the Jews don't make a distinction between spirit and soul. 
For the Jews, the soul is the same as the spirit. It's the inner man. The Jew doesn't make a distinction between earth and heaven. There is very little heavenly reward associated with Judaism. Very little. The Jews are concerned primarily with one, and the Jews mean ancient Judaism, is concerned with one and, and one primary thing, and that is life here on the earth. So they're not looking at the difference between heaven and, and earth. They're not looking at the difference between our life there and our life here. They're recognizing through their actions, they're recognizing that their life here is represented in the most tangible way through their money. And the use of their money shows the operation of their spirit, whether it's in the spiritual energy or creative energy to earn the money or the use when you're giving to somebody else. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 10 real quick. We'll go through this in a hurry. Mark chapter 10. You'll know the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus is talking to uh, a Jewish crowd again. And when he was gone forth in the way, there came one running. This is verse 17, Mark 10, 17. And kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is one, none good but one, and that's God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Now, what is the one thing that he lacks? If you want to do an interesting study sometime, go through and see which commandments, which ones of the Ten Commandments Jesus referred to. They're the ones that have to do with interaction with other people. Because of the interaction, the fact that the man said, and Jesus didn't call him a liar, so we have to assume that he told the truth. When he said, all these things I've observed from my youth up, what's he saying? He's saying, here's the reason I'm rich. I've honored other people. I've interacted with other people according to the commandments. This is why the blessing of Abraham is working. This is why he's rich. So Jesus says, one thing you lack. There's only one thing that you lack. Now, folks, if Jesus ever appears to me and says, Mike, there's only one thing missing for you, only one thing you need to work on, I am going to do a jig. This guy's in a pretty good place. But Jesus said, one thing thou lackest, go your way, sell whatsoever you have, and give to the poor. For what purpose? Because I don't want you to have stuff. Because God's against people having things. No. For one purpose, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Now, what did we just read in Luke chapter 12? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. In other words, your heart, the spirit man, the attitude that the spirit man has toward God. Oh, I didn't say this. when I, I didn't finish the thing about the Ten Commandments. Jesus referred to the commandments that have to do with interaction with other people. He left out the ones that talked about your relationship with God. So what's the one thing that this man lacks? His heart's not in the right place. The blessing of Abraham's working for him, but his heart's not in the right place as far as God is concerned. Now, remember the story that Jesus told over in Luke chapter 12? The guy that wanted to pull down his barns and build bigger barns so he could have more for himself? Jesus said, so is it, so is it when a person lays up treasure for himself instead of being rich toward God. What does this man lack? He lacks his heart being in the right place through being rich toward God.
So he said, one thing you lack. Sell what you have and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up your cross and follow me. Now you know as well as I do that the promise, Jesus elaborates on what will happen if this man gives to the poor. He'll get more. The Bible says in the Old Testament Proverbs, it says he that lends to the Lord, he that gives to the poor lends to the Lord and the Lord will repay him. It's a play on words there in the Hebrew. It literally means repay, repay. God will give him double portion. Does this guy not know that? Why does Jesus not preach him a sermon? Now, now it starts to walk away and say, hold on, hold on. Look, let me explain something to you. I'm not trying to get you to get rid of your stuff. I just want you to have your heart in the right place. And don't, don't you remember in the Old Testament the promise is if you give to the poor, God will repay you double. You'll wind up with even more. Just do it. That's what we would do. We'd try to talk somebody into it. Jesus did not. Jesus let the guy walk. Sell what you have. One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell what you have. And give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come take up the cross and follow me. He's trying to get his heart in the right place. And he offers him the chance to be one of his disciples. Same thing he offered Peter. Come follow me. And he was sad. The rich man was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Brother Hagin used to say, and I like this, he said, the real meaning of this is his possessions had him. And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And his disciples patted themselves on the back and said, yeah, it's good to be like us. Folks, these are guys, ignorant men, unlearned men. But they knew the blessing of Abraham was the promise of riches. So the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now what rich man is he talking about? Is he saying it's harder for a rich man blessed with the blessing of the Lord and it makes no uh, which makes rich and adds no sorrow to it? Is he saying the blessing of the Lord that, uh, that makes a person rich through the blessing of Abraham? That guy, it's going to be tough for him to get in? He can't be talking about him. He's talking about one of two things. He's either talking about somebody that's rich through their own means rather than the blessing of God or somebody like in the case of this rich young ruler that seems to have forgotten that God was his source. Either way, the disciples are astonished because they know everything about God's promise and interaction with Abraham was about wealth and wealth creation. So they're astonished. Verse 26, they were astonished out of measure. Not sure how astonished that is, but it sounds pretty big. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves. Notice their question. When Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the man that trusts in his riches... Not the man that has possessions, it's the man that whose possessions have him, whose heart's not right toward God. He says it's harder for that man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples were astonished out of measure and noticed their question, who then can be saved? In other words, the Jews are saying, well, that leaves out all of Israel. Because all of Israel has the blessing of Abraham promise. And that promise makes us rich. 
So notice their position. Notice where they're coming from. This is a totally different mindset. This is a totally different point of view than anything they've ever heard before. They've been brought up and taught that God wants them blessed, that God will bless the work of their hands, and that, that riches and wealth is a part of the blessing that God gave to Abraham, and therefore them. Now, Jesus says it's tough for a rich man, a man that trusts in his riches. It's tough for that man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they say, goodness gracious, who then can be saved? You can see what their attitude toward riches is. It's a part of what God's already done for us. Now, Jesus, you're saying that that's not supposed to be what's ours? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God... All things are possible. In other words, it's possible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven as long as his heart's right toward God. With God, all things are possible. That was the thing this one rich young ruler was missing. And Jesus answered and said, no, I'm sorry, skip verse 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Peter's always justifying himself. Peter began to say unto him, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. You told this rich young ruler to sell what he has and gives to the poor. We've already done that. We've left everything we had and followed you. What about us? Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but that he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time on earth. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Now, when you begin to prosper by the hand of the Lord, you don't have to believe the persecutions. They'll come on their own. With persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. Notice he's saying that there's a blessing attached to sacrificing things for the kingdom of God's sake. Not only earthly blessing, but heavenly blessing. Why is there a heavenly blessing? Because you're laying up treasure in heaven. Why is there an earthly blessing? Because God repays whatever you sacrifice for him. But then he says, but many that are first shall be last, and the last first. Why did he add that? Because he's saying this just doesn't apply to the Jews. It's applied to the Gentiles that you don't think have any blessing attached to them, but they will. What does all this mean, folks? It means your money is you, whether you use it for spiritual purposes or whether you use it for selfish purposes. Your money is you. The money that you make reflects your spiritual energy, which, is, according to the Jews, is the power to get wealth. Your money is you. Yeah, there's more to you than your money, but all of your money is your entire self at work. We need to look at our money and the interaction that we have with other people with our money as our spirit at work. You need to look at your job as the spirit man at work. It's not just something that you do to make money and earn a living so that you can really get to the things that you want to do and that are important to you in life. Your money represents your life. The Jews get this. And they're operating in faith according to it. Not the kind of faith that we know of, not believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth. But they're putting their hands to work at something and God blesses it. He will yours too. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word as revealed by the Holy Spirit. Take these things that we've said, Father, and, and 
quicken us by the Holy Ghost. Hold our feet to the fire, Lord, and cause us to realize you at work in us. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that you want everything that you promised to Abraham to be ours. And you sent Jesus to accomplish it. Thank you, Father, that we've got a better covenant established upon better promises. All that you promised Abraham plus the Spirit of God living within us. The life of God. Thank you, Lord, for bringing the blessing of Abraham to pass in our behalf. We declare that the blessing of the Lord makes us rich. And you add no sorrow to it. Thank you, Father, that you've given us the power to get wealth. The ability to create wealth in these last days. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you.